The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular story podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth. We have a very magical and special episode, because tonight we are going south of our cold and blizzardy northeast Philadelphia in North America. And we are going to the beautiful and tropical South American country of Colombia to escape from this. We are literally recording this in the middle of the worst blizzard we've had in years in Philadelphia. And we are feeling like we need sunshine, flowers, exotic and beautiful jungle animals. Butterflies. Caterpillars, two caterpillars to be precise. I want to go to a fairy kingdom where all of the people have some innate magical gifts, where a house can move and talk just like a regular person. That's right, Midnight Myth listeners. This is Derek Jones and Laurel Hostack doing an Encanto episode. Yeah, we are so excited to do this. Of course, Encanto just landed on Disney Plus a few weeks ago and has just taken everyone by storm. It is a beautiful and fantastical, magical piece of Disney animation that is going to rise to the ranks of some of their greatest works, I think. And there is clearly a ton for us to talk about from the lens of history, mythology, and philosophy, but also from psychology and really interesting modern ideas of how we relate as families and communities. So I am very, very stoked to be able to talk about it and hopefully not spend the entire episode either singing or crying. Or a little bit of both. You know, it's no surprise if you've been listening to The Midnight Myth for a while, and most of you are, I hope, have listened to everything we've done. We've talked many times about our fandom of Lin-Manuel Miranda. We got engaged after we saw Hamilton on Broadway. We've done a Hamilton episode. We've done a Moana episode. So it makes sense that we would do an Encanto episode 
this guy, Lin-Manuel Miranda, can do no wrong right now for me. Everything he is popping out is amazing. Moana was my favorite Disney movie since The Lion King, by far, easily. And here we are with Encanto, my next favorite Disney movie since Moana. I think it's a classic. Our one-year-old son sits in his playpen, watches this movie, and then tries to dance along with a huge smile on his face. This movie is so good. Even a one-year-old really loves it. So if a 40-year-old and a one-year-old can really be into a movie, you're doing something right as a storyteller. Yeah, completely infectious. So we've watched it a few times, and we honestly listen to the soundtrack at least once a day. Like, I listen to it while I'm getting Arthur ready for daycare, and then usually when we get home before we have dinner, if I'm cooking dinner or something and he's playing by himself, I pop on the Encanto soundtrack again, and he just dances and has the greatest time. And it, there's there's no end to the joy and the magic that I think it brings. I completely and totally agree with that. And I think, generally speaking, this movie is getting a lot of love and a lot of praise right now. And I think that's rightfully so. We are living in some very strange and very dark times. No matter who you are in the world, the pandemic has affected you and it has affected you negatively. To be able to go into this magical land and to see this story of this outrageously fantastical family and to heal and watch this family heal itself was very healing for me. And it's one of these moments where the power of storytelling is very palpable. You can feel the energy and the love. And as these characters heal, you yourself feel healed. You have the same catharsis that this family goes through. Anyway, I'm putting the cart way ahead of the horse here. Putting the donkey before the, or the cart before the donkey. Yeah. The cart before the donkey. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah. Before we get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, my thing is just that we would love to hear from you. We are all over social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. Feel free to drop us a line if you have any questions or you just want to chat and say hi. Uh, the very best thing you can do for the podcast is to leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Five stars really goes a long, long way. And a couple of words about why you like the podcast really helps us find new people. Meanwhile, you can also find us on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com. That'll send you to our Patreon and our merch store as well if you wanted to support us financially. And just a Wheel of Ka update, we have paused the Wheel of Ka, started with, we were reading The Stand, I launched a company, and The Stand got put on hold. Now Steve has a baby, so The Stand got put on hold. But we are actively in discussions about when it makes sense for us to pick The Stand back up. That's going to be happening soon, so stay tuned. We should have more awesome Stephen King discussion coming. Awesome. I also just want to say we are recording episode number 198 right now, and that means we are just mere weeks away from our 200th episode, which, holy wow, that is super exciting and an incredible milestone for us in the years that we have been podcasting. So stay tuned for us to announce what that 200th episode spectacular will be. And it's going to be amazing as soon as we think of what as we're going to do. As soon as we figure it out. <laughs> But we're going to do something big. We just don't know what that is yet. Great. All right. On with the show. Shall we do the briefest of brief recaps? Take it away, Derek. Encanto takes place in a magical Encanto in Colombia where a family has a, ca a candle that does not burn out, 
which has built a moving, living house for them to live in. And all of the grandchildren and children and grandchildren get to walk through a magical door in which they are given their superpower. And the superpower is used to help this community. And because of this, this community has thrived. The one thing goes wrong when one of the grandchildren's Mirabelle does not get a gift. Everyone else in the family has a superpower but her. As she's going through her journey, she starts to see literal cracks in the foundation of the magical house, worried that the magic would be leaving and that the house is threatened. And should the house go away, so would the entire Encanto. She ends up seeking out her fortune-telling a strained Uncle Bruno who has a prophecy that Mirabelle's fate would be the fate of the family. She will either destroy the family or heal the family. This puts her at direct odds with the Abuela, the matriarch of the family, who's trying to more or less cover up that the magic is fading in hopes of holding the family together. All of this culminates with Abuela and Mirabelle having a drop-down argument where Mirabelle accuses Abuela of being the real cause of the cracks of the family, and the house at the climax of this argument collapses. Its last piece of magic is to cover Mirabelle. Mirabelle then ends up leaving the Encanto and causing everybody to look for her when Abuela finds her. And there we hear, she's choking up, Yep, the tragic story of how the miracle happened when Abuela's husband, Pedro, sacrificed himself while she was holding her triplets, newborn triplets. I'm literally tearing up. We're not going to make it through this episode. <laughs> I'm literally tearing up. And her pain caused the miracle to happen with Mirabelle, seeing Abuela and her pain, realizing what they went through together. When they heal their relationship, the town comes together and rebuilds the house the old-fashioned way with human work, sweat, and ingenuity. And in the last moments, they give Mirabelle, oh boy, they give her (laughs) a doorknob with her initial on it, and she finally turns the door, and the house and the magic is restored, and the Akanto gets to live on. Oh my God. Okay. So we're maybe five minutes in and we've had, we've shed our first tears. That's fine. It's like we've drawn first blood. Now it's okay to let the floodgates open. So our apologies to you. There will be more of this as it comes. We are new parents describing a movie that is deeply uh, moving and emotional and left us feeling extremely vulnerable. I can't even summarize the movie without tearing up. That's (laughs) That's how much I feel what these characters are feeling. That's probably the first time in the history of this podcast where I did a recap where I started crying in the middle of it. during the recap, yeah. Okay, so generally this is the point where we ask, does it hold up? The movie is weeks old for us. It has not been out for a long time. So that question doesn't really apply. Just give me your general impressions, thoughts of the movie, I absolutely see this one 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, still holding up. Tell me what you think. Yeah, I agree. We did say a couple of our first impressions at the beginning. We were just kind of gushing love over the film. And I I truly think this is a deeply special Disney film that is going to live on among the classics. I think it is going to go on to be one that is as revered as Beauty and the Beast or Lion King or Frozen. I think it has... Uh, you know, something we talked about recently is the legacy of Frozen, that if you look at the Disney animated films that have come out after, 
In many ways, things like Moana and Encanto have surpassed Frozen, but you have to give so much credit to it as the first really blockbuster Disney animated, um, you know, CGI 3D animation. There were other ones before it, but you just have to give it a lot of credit. And this one for me, the music, Lin-Manuel's music, the character design is so special and so specific. This one, Moana and, you know, Pixar has been making some strides too as well. You see the real advancement in human characters as it comes to 3D CGI. We're no longer dealing with these kind of uncanny valley Toy Story uh, characters, but we have real specific facial differentiation and expression And there is something really beautiful about seeing the spectrum of different kinds of faces in this movie. I love the representation of all skin colors of Colombia as a a South American country that is also part of the African diaspora. It also features Afro-Colombian people. And one of my favorite characters, Theo Felix, and his son Antonio really represent that beautiful Afro-Colombian-ness. So that was really exciting for me to see costume design, the Beautiful and delicate references to the literary works of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, I think, are outstanding as well in the fact that it pulls from his tradition of Colombian magic realism and also takes the symbols of the yellow butterfly and is really paying some beautiful homage and tribute to this incredible author. I also just have to say how gorgeous it is to see Colombia in all of its color and culture and music and magic when... As Americans, we are so often fed the narrative of Colombia as just one big drug cartel. And this is like, no, it's actually one of the most stunningly gorgeous, sublime places you could possibly imagine. And it is a wonderful thing, I think, to shed some light on that culture and that fabulousness. Yeah, I love all of that. I totally agree with everything that you said. I want to just add a few layers um, on my own personal experiences I've always had a gringo affinity for Central and South American culture. A few reasons for that. My parents, after they first got married, they moved to New Mexico. And so they had brought back uh, just different styles of dress and different. They learned a little bit of Spanish, etc. So there was always this appreciation for Mexican culture that they picked up in New Mexico. One of my closest and oldest friends is the first generation of Brazilian immigrants. And from him, I've learned a ton about Brazil, what it means to be a Brazilian and the Brazilian culture. And I also have some family that are Chileans. My um, cousin, her husband, so who is my cousin by marriage, is a Chilean immigrant. And their children, my second cousins, are half Chilean. All this is to say it is very cool to see a different culture and country, different people represented in the new version of the Disney fairy tale. And I think you can look at Frozen, Moana, and now Encantu as sort of new reimaginings of the standard fairy tale. And now when I mean the fairy tale, because that's a very big word, it can have lots of interpretations and it can have a lot of different ways that it could, it could mean different things. Is it a grim fairy tale? Is this myth a fairy tale? And, Some answers, some would say yes, some would say no. But specifically, I want to pick apart what it means to be a Disney fairy tale. And there is a bit of a formula there. Typically, the main character is a young woman who is linked to some sort of a ruling dynasty. Typically, we could call this a princess. 
This young woman gets estranged, usually due to a matriarchal figure, like a stepmom or an evil queen, gets estranged from the kingdom, has to kind of go out into the wild, find her own way, and then typically through the partnership with a strong, traditionally masculine hero, ends up overcoming the matriarch, returns back to claim her right to rule as the next generation, and heals the land. The land itself is typically magical in its own nature, so there are mystical and magical forces at play. This really kind of feels like Encanto too, because you have Mirabelle and Abuela, the matriarch, standing against her. Then you also have Bruno as this male figure that comes in to aid and help her. The world is magical in its very nature. The house itself can move and talk. So in many ways, this looks very much like a traditional Disney fairy tale. But it also, at the same time, completely upends those. The The, the climax is not Bruno being a traditional masculine hero. In fact, he is not. He is an outcast. He is strange. He doesn't really help her that much. His intentions are good, but he kind of gets in the way, even though he gives Mirabelle what she needs. Mirabelle doesn't need to overcome Abuela and unseat her evil rule. In fact, Abuela is actually a really fantastic ruler. If you think of her as the queen of the Encanto, she is really good at her job, but her desire to preserve the Encanto has meant that she has hurt her family. So in this, Mirabelle needs to bring the family back into harmony by recognizing the trauma that they've gone through and healing the trauma. The world is magical. It is, but that magic is contained inside the magical house. Usually it is the princess that leaves the, the kingdom and then encounters the magic and then from there has to overcome the obje- uh, obstacles to return home. Well, this whole thing takes place inside the home, which is magic itself. So it's really interesting how this movie pays incredible love and homage to the standard Disney fairy tale, the standard Disney animated fairy tale that we see in Snow White, we see in Cinderella, we see sort of in Frozen, but at the same time completely upends it And it's worth noting that traditional Disney fairy tale takes place in a magical medieval Western European place where everybody is lily white. And this is, if nothing else, this is not that, you know, and that is absolutely noticeable. And that is a very good thing. The fact that my son can sit there and see Colombians on screen and laugh and dance has to be a net positive for diversity and representation in the world. I've seen some YouTube videos of little kids who are of Central American descent, who have similar hairstyles, similar body types to those in the movie, crying because they're like, wow, that looks like me, crying tears of joy when they see it. And I think it's really interesting and and special that Disney has decided to take its fairy tale formula and evolve it for the modern times and that that it works and that it completely smash hit home run works is really fantastic that you can make really good art fantastic animation represent different people and cultures not make it exploitative and cheap and false and really tell this amazing story that 
unless you're a proud boy, you probably love. Yeah. I just want to also add that I heard a friend say that her daughter, who's probably four or five, watched the movie and then said, Mom, when I grow up, I want to look just like Louisa. And that is something that's really cool, too, that Disney is offering, these different presentations of feminine body types and saying it is really aspirational to look at a strong woman and want to look like her just as much as you might want to look at Mirabelle and want to look like her and wear beautiful, cool glasses or look at the conventionally beautiful, conventionally, quote unquote, perfect Isabella and say, I want to look like her and grow flowers from my hands. I love this point that you're making about the fairy tale. And I just want to add something to it because it reminded me of a quote from uh, one of my favorite scholars of fairy tales, Maria Tatar. And I'm just going to paraphrase. She talks about fairy tales and not necessarily just the Disney presentation of them, but fairy tales writ large as lacking interiority. They are broad strokes, right? So they are stories that contain magic, but the characters do not have obvious psychology. They want something, but they just go out and they do the thing. There's no presentation of the interior thought or process of how they feel their emotions. And what Encanto is doing and what a lot of other more contemporary uh, reiterations of fairy tales or recalculations of fairy tales are absolutely interested in that interiority and that psychology. And Encanto specifically is all about revealing the interiority of the characters. So taking this on its surface, very um, traditional story arc and saying, let's go deconstruct the strong character and see what she's actually feeling while she's performing feats of strength. Let's go to the beautiful golden child who is always perfect and let's see how she feels about always needing to be perfect. Let's go to the powerful matriarch and see that inside she's really insecure and still grieving and so fearful that she is going to cause harm to her family. There is something that is so unique in how it goes to these characters who on their surface look one way and shows that on the inside they feel a different way. And I think that is one of the greatest successes of the movie and one of the most important and significant points it's trying to make. I would add on top of that that Bruno having the ability to see the future is really portrayed as a curse. Yeah, because many of the gifts are portrayed as curses. Because people say, hey, what's my future? Well, you're going to get overweight and go bald. And then they get overweight and go bald and then they blame Bruno so much so that he retreats deeper into the house. Yeah. And the way that um, Mirabelle has to fix the magic is she herself has to go deeper into the house, which is to say they have to go deeper into themselves and they have to really look at these cracks in the foundation, which are, to me, literal representations. The, The foundation is cracked, literally, is also mirrored in their psychological and their dynamic also having cracks in it. And the fact that everybody here is not okay, in particular, the characters that get the most attention. And that would be Luisa, Abuela, Bruno, uh, Isabella, and then lastly, Mirabelle. These are pretty much the main characters. They get the most songs, they get the most time, and they're not doing well. Every one of them is suffering to one degree or another And it isn't until they reconcile and heal that suffering till they actually fix the cracks in the foundation that the magic itself returns. It's also not until they realize it's not about the gifts. 
They are more than their gifts. And, oh, God, feeling the emotions coming on. When they're looking at the ruins of their house and they're like, what do we do? You know, we lost the magic and the townspeople come and they say, we have no gifts, but we are many and we would do anything for you. The, the miracle is that this community exists. The miracle is that these families love each other. And the fact that they use their gifts so selflessly when they are in need, well, the people that they've spent their lives helping, what do they do? They help them. This is all an excellent introduction to the analysis that I wanted to bring to the movie, if it's okay with you. Wonderful. So this is something that has been... I, I just did a thumbs up on a podcast. No one can hear that. It's fine with me. <laughs> I don't need to ask permission. I have to stop asking for permission and, and saying if that makes sense. That's one of those like New Year's resolutions for women. Stop apologizing and stop asking if you're making sense. Anyway, so I wanted to talk a little bit about something that has been buzzed about with this film. I wanted to bring a little bit more detail to the conversation around how Encanto portrays intergenerational trauma. So the definition per the American Psychological Association of Intergenerational Trauma is a phenomenon in which the descendants of a person who has experienced a terrifying event show adverse emotional and behavioral reactions to the event that are similar to those of the person themselves. This is also sometimes called transgenerational trauma, historical trauma, multi-generational trauma, and secondary traumatization. The observed effects of this kind of trauma are just as varied as with any firsthand trauma. So it can be hard to study because there are so many different ways it can present itself, but it can include things like post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, intrusive thoughts, difficulty with attachment or relationships, and difficulty regulating emotions. A lot of these things are things that I think you can specifically pick out characters in Encanto dealing with. Difficulty regulating emotions and anxiety is something you can absolutely ascribe to Peppa, who causes hurricanes if she has a bad day and has to force herself to think of clear skies. The phenomenon was first studied among second and third generation survivors of the Holocaust and Japanese American internment camps, so the children and grandchildren of those populations. But more recent research on intergenerational trauma has focused on populations like indigenous groups, Vietnam veterans' families, descendants of enslaved people, refugees, and other groups who have experienced collective traumas. Now, as far as the mechanism for transmission of generational trauma, it can be socially transmitted through learned behaviors, or thanks to the contributions of the human genome, we now know that individuals who undergo extreme distress or a traumatic event can pass it to their children through epigenetic factors. So trauma can, in a sense, change your genes, almost alter your DNA so that it is genetically transmitted to your offspring and can, and can affect generations ahead. I'm sorry, what is epigenetic? Uh, so I am not an expert in this, so I'm just going to give you the like most basic understanding that I have. Essentially, it's evolution, but on a very micro scale, so not happening over millions of years, but happening within the course of a few years or generations. There is uh, there's the study of changes to your genes that are not so fundamental as the core of the DNA, 
the idea is that there are these things called methyl tags that can attach to your genes and change the way your gene expresses itself or functions rather than root core changing your DNA. And that can have a direct effect on your experience, your children's experience, and possibly two or three generations uh, forward. Very cool, very interesting science. Not something I have tons of detail on, but that's kind of what you need to know to understand this. Got it. Awesome. So the field of study of generational trauma is super, super young. Like I said, it was only recognized in the 1960s when they were studying the second generation of Holocaust survivors. So the research early on focused on really broad populations suffering from a unified collective trauma, like enslavement or genocide. But other common sources of trauma have been studied recently that include domestic violence, sexual abuse, and poverty, these things that are actually on an individual level rather than just on a major collective scale. So you can study how a whole generation might internalize a collective trauma of their parents' generation, but you can also study how an individual trauma might travel down your family tree. And in Kanto, I think we're seeing a mixture of both these two manifestations of transgenerational trauma. So on the one hand, Abuela Alma is a member of a community that is violently displaced. They are refugees in a sense. This event could and likely did traumatize the entire community. And that's something that we don't really learn more of the details of until much later on in the movie. Refugee populations are a significant focus of the research in the field because these populations experience a loss of home and often a loss of safety and security that can affect them for years, for the rest of their life. And in situations that include war or violence, the effects can be even more traumatic and damaging. But on an individual level, Abuela also faces the very personal loss of her husband and her co-parent. And like, okay, so here come the waterworks for me. As a new mother, this hit me extremely hard to watch Alma telling this story because she's caring for these three newborns, which seems to me like an insurmountable task, even in the best of situations, the best of circumstances with a supportive partner and a village to assist you. But she also is feeling the grief of losing her home, losing her beloved husband, and the person who was supposed to be there to help her raise her kids. And all of this when she is like newly postpartum and extremely emotionally vulnerable, horribly sleep deprived probably, and totally alone. Like that's unbelievable how much uh, resilience she must have had to muster in order to survive and keep her children alive, let alone thrive and help a community survive it. And you see the effects of this in the next generation, Abuela's children manifesting as their magical gifts. Peppa, like I said, her mood controls the weather. She can't regulate her emotions. She responds to stressors in really explosive ways. Bruno has the power of prophecy, which causes so much pain to other people and himself that he goes into self-exile. And Julieta, Mirabelle's mother, is a healer. She's always trying to fix the pain felt by others, by the people she loves, because she feels this obligation to go in and fix everything. And then in the next generation, it's compounded. Luisa is crushed under the weight of the expectations that are placed on her. Isabella feels the overwhelming need to always be perfect. And Dolores has super hearing, but nobody listens to her. And she hears things she doesn't want to hear. Camilo shapeshifts like he's experiencing 
a, a, a constant identity crisis. A he lack has of self. No idea who he is. And Mirabelle, who isn't even given a magical gift, has to deal with the emotions of constantly feeling undervalued in this family. And as you get to know Abuela, you can recognize the effects of this distress on her as well. She feels a constant need to earn the miracle that she was given, fearing that she'll lose more, which then leads her to push members of her family to their breaking point, like Luisa, even with the best of intentions. Mirabel, there's a scene where Mirabel is overhearing her speaking to the memory of Abuelo Pedro, expressing this debilitating fear that she has of losing her home again. She says, I cannot lose our home again. And that's motivating everything that she does. She's trying to hold on to the miracle that she's been given, but that is inadvertently causing all of her family members to be crushed under that weight. And it's only at the end of the movie that she's actually able to return to the river, which is the site of the traumatic event. And when she returns there, she sees her past through the eyes of Mirabelle. She sees her own strength and resilience, and she can start to heal and apologize for the harm she's inflicted in response to her trauma. And I think it handles it in such a nuanced way because it does provide a level of forgiveness of Abuela for what she has inflicted because it says... We have to give you some allowances because you have not been able to process your own grief. But she also does have the obligation to apologize and to take the step to heal. Because just because you're going through a tough time, it doesn't give you the excuse to be cruel. There is a level of balance that is implied that says, you apologize, but I forgive you. Yeah, I, that's an interesting thought. Um, you know, there's a weird thing that happens once you become a parent that this movie Mirabelle is the hero and we are, we are really meant to see this world through Mirabelle's eyes more than anyone else's. But as a parent, you start to see things through a eyes. Yeah, sure. And be like, what if I was a single parent with three kids and a refugee and then suddenly got magic powers? What would that do to me? And in many ways, you know, you, you, you called Abuela cruel. And I think that, that's kind of hard. That's a bit of a harsh indictment. I think Abuela is an amazing mom and an amazing ruler. Sure. And because she was a refugee, she puts the needs of the community first a little too much so that it, it, it lessens her ability to see who her children and grandchildren truly are. And because of that, she says, listen, we had nothing and now we are literal gods on earth and we must be responsible. That power is not ever to be taken for granted. It must be used to serve, never to harm, never to hurt. The reason Bruno is exiled, self-exiled is because he sees his power hurting. And the whole thing is this power must be used for the community. And in that the gifts started to define that, who they were as people. And what we see in that intergenerational trauma is that they are actually people first and God's second. Yeah. And yeah. superheroes second. And I think that's an interesting identity flip that we see from the quote unquote superhero genre where characters typically get lost in their superhero persona and become the superhero first. We see it in Batman begins when Rachel says your real face is the one the criminals now fear. 
and the mask is Bruce Wayne. That's very true for that yeah, character. Sure. And so in this, it really flips that. And it's because of the trauma that she went through that she places the needs of the community. She places the needs of the gifts serving the community ahead of seeing her family as people so much so that she's forcing one of her grandkids into a marriage she doesn't want so much so that she is treating Mirabelle as less than because she doesn't have a gift and is being mean to Mirabelle. But I think cruelty implies intent. Yeah, sure. Cruelty implies to me that you are trying to be mean. Abuela is trying to, to lead this community and in it, we realized that because if she were cruel, she would not have apologized. And it, she realizes, oh man, I I have taken Mirabelle for granted. And the, the miracle is actually that we're all here and alive. That's the real miracle. And that is how you then restore the magic to the realm. That is how you restore their place as the rightful rulers of this community is that they start to see everybody in the family as unique individuals first with gifts to serve second. Yeah, and then they can finally have a harmonious relationship with their own gifts too. They can find a refuge in it and also find a refuge from it. I think that's great. Thank you for that. I just a, a little addendment to that, like because I loved everything that you're saying because I think it's true. It's just like, yes, Abuela needs to apologize to Mirabelle. And yes, she needs to give Louise, Louise a break. And yes, Isabella should choose who she wants to marry and should be allowed to wear weird colors if she wants to wear weird colors. And I think the lesson is learned that, you know, it's not about the gifts. It's not about the magic. It's about the love. And that's enough for Abuela to lead this community because Abuela also has to pick the next leader. She will not be the matriarch for forever. The gifts don't give them immortality. So in order for this community to continue, it's the power, the ruling, the matriarch will need to pass on. And to me, it seems like it's going to pass to Mirabelle. Yeah, and Mirabelle will become the ruler who surpasses her, which is the idea, right? You want the next generation and the next generation to be stronger and to be better than you. And in order to be that, Mirabelle, number one, needs the whole story. She needs to understand why we're here in the Encanto, why the miracle came to us, and why we have our gifts. And she needs to be able to lead with the understanding of those nuances and the understanding of the individualities of her family members. I think that's great. I just want to add one more piece onto this because we have to think about how to heal from intergenerational trauma. And this movie does give us a pathway for healing. And very importantly, nobody goes to therapy in this movie. Nobody specifically like explicitly goes to therapy, but I do think there is a symbolic expression of a treatment method for this kind of trauma that Abuela experiences. So I just want to describe that. There is a therapeutic method known as prolonged exposure therapy or exposure therapy that's often used to treat PTSD. It's a very modern method. It was actually developed by a scientist or a doctor, a psychologist at UPenn, our neighbors uh, in Philadelphia. And simply put, it consists of two procedures. Imaginal exposure, in which the individual intentionally retells the traumatic memory over and over again. And in vivo exposure, in which the individual gradually confronts objects, places, and situations that are reminders of the trauma, but in an objectively safe environment. So exposing you to things that remind you of it, but saying, by the way, 
you're still safe. It's not happening to you again right now. You can experience these things again in a safe way. Abuela and Mirabelle's reconciliation features Abuela specifically retelling, and probably for the first time in its entirety, the full traumatic memory with all of the details of why they left their home and how she and Pedro fell in love and how much grief she felt when he died. And it also features a visitation to the site where the event took place the first time Abuela is able to go back. So she's doing the imaginal and the in vivo exposure. And through this encounter with the specifics of the event, Abuela finally starts that path to healing, which in turn can inspire her family to start their own healing journeys. So I just wanted to bring that in because if this movie is going to tell us you can heal from this, it's doing so in a symbolic way. But if you are someone who is going through this, there are treatment methods to seek. There is therapy. There are support systems. There are people out there who can help you find your way through it and start your path to healing. But it's going to hurt and it's going to take a lot of work. With that, I want to talk a little bit about Colombian history. And I think this kind of relates to your point about intergenerational trauma and how that relates to these characters. So I did a little digging here. It's worth noting, I want to talk about some broad brushes of, in particular, the history of Colombia. I'm not going to get too deep in specific. One, because it's a brand new history to me that I had never even picked up a book or read about. So I'm not super knowledgeable about the subject. So forgive any errors or misinterpretations. Um, and then two, I think it's worth noting that in a lot of people are asking when in Colombian history did Encanto happen? And it's worth noting that this is a magical world. They do not give a date. They do not say this is Colombia at X amount of time. And it's very much this kingdom that is ciphered off from the rest of the world. And we should keep that in mind when we interject history into the magical. That being stated, I think there are some interesting historical events that I believe colored and shaped how they told this story, but I don't think they are directly referenced as a one-to-one, -one, if that makes sense. So this is a sort of loose mapping of Colombian history into Encanto. Most people think that this movie takes place in the 1950s in Colombia. And the reason for that is because Abuela says it's been 50 years since they found the Encanto and it looked, the movie starts with violence and people think that that violence is called the Thousand Days War, which took place from 1899 to 1902. Now, before I get to that specific event, it's worth backing up a little bit because I'm a history guy, so I like to start at the beginning and people have been living in what we now, the area we now call Colombia, for at, since at least 12,000 BC. Wow. They've been there for a very, very long time. And so there are hunter-gatherer societies. There are, uh, you know, ancient people depictions of things like uh, ice-aged mammals that have now since gone extinct. So humans have been there for an incredibly long period of time in a prehistoric time. It's also worth jumping forward a few thousand years. There's a huge major event. I don't know if we've ever specifically addressed in this podcast, but man, it's one of the biggest historical events that has ever occurred. And it has had reverberations from the medieval to the modern world and has radically reshaped 
the planet, our ecology, every single aspect of human existence is somehow been touched by this. And that was when Christopher Columbus sailed from the Spanish, from left from Portugal officially, but under the Spanish flag and discovered the quote unquote new world. This led to the emergence of both the Spanish and the Portuguese empires. And these empires conquered central, what we now call Central and South America. The Spanish empire in particular ended up conquering the area we now call Colombia. This um, had directly led to other European powers wanting to compete with the Spanish, which led to the English, the Dutch, the French, all carving out pieces of the new world for themselves. And we would not have the world as we know it today if we did not have colonialism. And from the Middle Ages, from the late Middle Ages into the early modern period, Western European powers were vying for territory and creating colonies all over the globe. And it starts with Christopher Columbus. Radically transformed politics, food, animals, trees, every single- Epidemiology, yeah. Every single fabric of human existence has been altered because of this in every single place on the planet. There are very few places of the world that aren't somehow touched in one way directly or indirectly because of this. And in no place is the Spanish empire's effect more prevalent than in Central and South America. The indigenous people, you know, it's commonly believed that the conquistadors used musket and cannon and horse and massacred everybody. And yes, there were massacres, but by far the biggest killer of indigenous peoples was disease. Were diseases that Europeans had had for thousands of years and built natural immunity that had never ever sought, touched foot on that soil. And then disease was the single biggest killer of people in the native indigenous peoples of Central and South America. So Colombia ends up, the territory that becomes Colombia is a Spanish colony. And as the modern period really begins, so too do the cracks in the foundation of colonialism, just as the cracks in the foundation of this home. And in 1819, Colombia officially receives its independence from Spain after fighting a, you know, fighting for their own independence. Almost instantly, Spanish politics becomes fractured into two political camps. One political camp wants to have a Catholic theocratic government. The other one wants a secular, modern, liberal, big L democracy, where they have a constitution with elections and enfranchisement. And these two factions live on till today, vying and jockeying for power. There have been renamings of Colombia. There have been several constitutions and there have been some bloody civil wars. One of those civil wars between the liberal and conservative camps is the Thousand Days War from 1899 to 1902 with an estimate death total of 100,000 lives. This is the first civil war post-independence, and it was between those two camps as two political sides were jockeying for power and they come to blows. The reason people think this is the starting point of the movie is between 1899 and 1902, people were still fighting battles on horseback. And we see pillagers yeah. and looters on horseback, which lends us to, to suspect that is the inspiration for the starting point of the story. And in this, we see a family, young family, 
with their town being burned and we see them becoming refugees. Invariably, war has consequences like the ones that we see. Oftentimes, war is depicted in film and TV through the eyes of those who perpetrate it and typically through our war hero. Saving Private Ryan is about Tom Hanks's character, Saving Private Ryan. Patton is about George Patton. Even wars deconstructing the horrors of film, such as The Deer Hunter or even Platoon, tell it through the eyes of the soldiers and what the violence has done and means to them. Very rarely do we see a story, at least inspired by war, through this, the eyes of the civilian who suffers. We see no indication whether Abuela or Pedro have any political leanings whatsoever. In fact, they are told in this flashback scene at the very end of the movie in a very apolitical way. They just have kids and they want to live in their community and they want to love their family. And lo and behold, a civil war, soldiers run in. It's worth noting that these soldiers are not in any way, shape, or form designated as the conservatives or the liberals. They are just soldiers coming to attack on horseback. And in it, we see a tremendous act of bravery from Pedro to sacrifice himself. So not only his family, but the entire refugee community can escape. In this way, uh, one other just thing that's worth noting about Colombian history, which is so bloody, and I mean so brutal and bloody, and this has nothing to do with the drug boom and cocaine in the 80s, right? So like everyone that thinks of Colombia as this drug place, man, its history is so much deeper and, and more interesting and more tragic than simply the story of Americans buying cocaine. Right. You know, and I think it's really worth noting that when you discuss the history, because you ask an average American, what do you think of Colombia? And they think, oh, drug lords and Scarface and, and narcos. Yeah. And narcos. And man, is that that a, just a gross um, and, you know, terrible characterization of yeah, a complicated a history yeah. that dates back to 12,000 B.C. All this being said. Should it be the case that the Thousand Days War is the inspiration for the starting point of the story, and it has been 50 years? In 50 years, there's a second Colombian Civil War, the La Valencia, which claimed over 300,000 lives, a more bloodier and worse battle yet to come, again with the conservative and the liberal party tearing the country apart over who can actually control Colombia. And... If that is the case, the Encantu is right on the verge of yet another civil war. And in this, as I now knowing a little bit about it, and I mean, I just know the broadest strokes, I really reinvestigate my interpretation of Encantu and what this movie means, because it is very much about inter, intergenerational trauma. But what is the cause of the trauma? It is war. War is the cause of the trauma. And you have this brief moment of peace, magical peace, in between two bloody conflicts. Having a civil war claim 100,000 lives, and then 50 years later, having another civil war claim 300,000 lives means that there are people that their entire life is going to be bookended by these conflicts. All they are going to know is warfare. All they are going to know is pain 
and suffering, political strife, and upheaval. And in this way, we look at how Abuela chooses to lead as de facto queen of this, of this world, and she leads with the community comes first. You have characters with tremendous gifts who would never abuse them, use them for selfish gain. The strongest character, Luisa, who can literally pick up a church like it's a rock, just a common, simple rock, and move it. Never uses violence, never shows aggression towards others. And in this respect, it is telling me from the intergenerational trauma to the historical piece that this movie is really investigating pacifism on a sociological level. Wow. And is very much a story from this particular context. Just this one, because there's many ways one could interpret it, is a story of pacifism, is a story of political power to serve others, is a story of non-expansionism, is a story of peace and the repudiation of political violence, the repudiation of warfare. That's amazing. You're sort of blowing my mind because when you think about it, it is a self-sustaining community. The Encanto itself, surrounded by mountains, it has water sources and you have these magical, powerful figures. So you have all of the resources that you need. At a certain point, you're probably going to run out of people to marry and uh, procreate with. But for a few generations, they have literally everything they need to sustain this community in an enclosed way. You get the sense, and I think that the filmmakers confirm this later, that you can't really easily move in and out of the Encanto because of the mountainous region. And the idea is that it is impossible to find them for the people who are coming after them in their previous community. It is a safe refuge, a haven for them to live in. And so it gives you this interesting exercise of power, of political will, because you do get the Madrigals as the leaders of the community who give willingly of their resources and who rarely ask for anything in return, but because they have been benevolent leaders and benefactors of the community, they are given so much back in the end when the townspeople come to help them rebuild their casita. So it is a very interesting, almost thought experiment of what if we could just build a little self-sustaining community and try and prove that human nature is inherently good. How realistic is it? Obviously, this is a fantasy, right? But it does give you some interesting meditations on peace, on benevolent power, on community structures that are are built around uh, mutually beneficial relationships. Uh, and, and I think that there is some net, I think, good to study that, right? And in this respect, we see a little bit of friend of the pod, Plato's Republic. Hey, yeah. With Abuela's attempt to be the philosopher king. And the attempt, she regulates breeding, music, power. She, you know, organizes everybody into their, what they need to do to serve the community. And we have a very harmonious and loving and caring community. And yes, this is not a realistic, you know, we should not look at the Encanto and be like, how do we make an Encanto? Well, first you need a miracle. Okay, well, that's not going to work. You can't, you can't replicate this as a 
uh, resolve to modern, complicated, post-colonial political issues and problems. There are still places in the world, such as Colombia, that are dealing with the consequences of Western European colonialism and are still living under that shadow and blood is still being shed because of this. Um, other examples are India and Pakistan. And we could go on and on and on about that. So I don't think the lesson should be, ah, all we need is an Encanto and an Abuela. No, but the real thing to me is that when we think of political violence and we think of warfare, telling the story through the eyes of the civilians that suffer because of it is very unique in how we discuss warfare in this. This is not a war movie in a classic or traditional sense, but it does deal with the consequences of warfare in a really thoughtful, nuanced way, which leads someone because of that trauma to become a better pacifist ruler. And in that, there is something hopeful, but there's also something tragic. You know, there's also something deeply, deeply sad about it all at the same time, because it is a magical fantasy. This is not the world that was created post-colonialism. This is not Colombia after its civil war. This is an enclave that is siphoned off from the political violence that it suffered. And if we, if we believe the timeline, we'll be suffering so shortly in the near future of, for these characters. And because of that, there is something deeply, deeply sad about it at the same time. Yeah, when you told me about the Second Civil War, it just kind of broke my heart. I was just, I don't know if you looked at me and my face falling, but I was completely crushed to just think of Abuela having to live through that again. Uh, because you also, you know, and I want to clarify my comments about saying this is a sustainable, benevolent community. We also have all have all been talking about the psychological toll that the pressure of sustaining a quote unquote benevolent powerful political community has has wrought on these characters so it is not entirely perfect it requires some flexibility to allow these characters to live their truth and their authentic selves uh, autonomously but by the end as they are allowing for this path to healing as they are allowing for the characters to begin to live themselves and see themselves as the gifts uh, the mountains around the Encanto are opened up a little bit. And so you get the sense that they are going to have further exchange in the future, that there is going to be more fluidity around the Encanto and the surrounding communities, and that there is going to be a little bit more openness. They're going to let people in and let themselves out occasionally. And knowing that historical piece just uh, has completely broken my heart. So thank you for that, Derek. Not a problem. <laughs> If there is any broader you know, lesson that we can take into our lives from this movie and from relating some big broad strokes of Colombian history to it, it's be kind to the refugee. Their lives have worth. They can contribute a ton to the world. And because they have lost their home, they deserve our help. They don't deserve our scorn or hatred. And I think to me, if there is a political point that we can extrapolate from it. It's not to form in contours. It's, hey, these people that are struggling and suffering without a home, they deserve a home just like you do, like we all do. Try our best to help them and don't scorn and hate them and cast them as other. And you truly can never understand the depth and the breadth of someone's experience and 
in many cases, their suffering, you cannot possibly fathom it, even if you get close and they tell you their entire story. And we truly lose a piece of our humanity when we stop seeing the people around us as human first, whether that's our our understanding or our treatment of refugees or immigrants, or that's our treatment of our own family or people in our lives who we have been seeing for their usefulness or their quote unquote worth based on their productivity before we see them as individual people who have feelings and pasts and suffering. Love it. As Kant says, you view people as ends in and of themselves. Yeah. Never just simply as means. Love it. I want to just transition. We're fucking close to time. The baby's nap is probably going to end any second now. I probably just cursed us. I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the mythological symbols yeah, in this. Yeah, I think we have to because we get some very direct references to Greek mythology specifically. Yeah, and it's also worth noting, I did not know, when Mirabel goes into Bruno's temple, Yeah, uh, I guess it's like a temple, it's his room, but it's like his temple, the artwork that you see is directly... Um, mirrored from prehistoric stone carvings that have been preserved and found in Colombia in a place that like looks like it could be in Kanto. That's very cool. And they really did uh, a good job representing that. The downside is it's very hard to study these artifacts because of the political turmoil there. Um, but there are some really amazing, uh, really old Colombian indigenous statues and works of art. And they have that kind of the way Bruno, his like eyes and mouth kind of have that. O. they all look like big circles. They all look like that. And they're really neat. You can look them up online and take a look at them. And I thought they did a really good job with that. Nice. And we're not really sure what they mean or what they represent, but the man, they are cool. Um, so yeah, you have Louisa who is super strong, invulnerable, who calls herself Hercules. In fact, in her song, she kicks out Hercules and defeats Cerebus, the three-headed dog that guards uh, the underworld. And we also see her holding the world up the way that Atlas holds up the sky. These are some direct references to Greek mythology. And I think they're really cool and they're really done well. And it really lends us to believe that the the people of the Encantu do come from a modern world, that they could know things like Greek mythology, even though they live in this this mystical, magical place, um, is pretty neat. They know that stars don't shine, they burn. So clearly there's some modern education Yeah, they know there, some astronomy, yeah. Which is also an interesting metaphor that links up to the candle, which burns, which will eventually go out. Burn out, yeah. Which will eventually go out, as a star will eventually go out. Um, but anyway, I'm losing my point here. I'd like to dive a little into Bruno. If you'll permit, are me. we going to talk about Bruno? We, we know we don't talk about talk Bruno. About Bruno, Bruno is such a fascinating character. He's so great, and there is a mythological antecedent, if you will, and that is the myth of Cassandra. I'd like to talk a little bit about the myth of Cassandra. Love it. Cassandra is a daughter of King Priam of Troy. She was known to be chaste, and she was known to be extraordinarily beautiful. This caught the eye of the god Apollo, who is the patron god of Troy. And Apollo, you know, wants her as his boo. So to entice her, he gives her the gift of prophecy. Apollo is one of the few and only Greek gods who can see the future, and he gives that to Cassandra. And when it comes for them to have their god to mortal nuptials and 
consummate the relationship, Cassandra does not have sex with him. She reneges on the deal. The deal is, hey, you give, I give you prophecy. I get to spend the night with you whenever I want. And she's just like, I'm sorry, I'm chaste, I'm a virgin. So he curses her so that no one can be, will ever believe her prophecies. She can see the future, but people will not believe her. And she is a princess of Troy, which means she can see the upcoming downfall of Troy and tries to warn people of what is coming and no one will believe her. And after Agamemnon sacks Troy, he takes Cassandra as his own personal sex right. slave. Yeah. And that is her fate. In this, there are a lot of things that we can extrapolate. One, it's an incredibly misogynistic tale. Like most Greek myths, it is somehow reinforcing the patriarchy and women having knowledge being bad. Two, it is also a tale that your fate is inevitable. Even if you could know your fate, there's something that would prevent you from changing it. And in this case, it is the fact that Cassandra can see the future, but nobody will believe her. And in many ways, we can look at Bruno as kind of a inversion of Cassandra. So Bruno can see the future. Everybody believes him, but everybody hates him for that because once you know your fate and your fate always will have something bad will happen to you in the future. Once you know your fate and know that the bad thing is coming and know that you can't prevent it, you end up resenting the fortune teller. And another way we could read this though, I think that's an interesting way to read that, that he is the opposite of Cassandra, that fortune telling, knowing the future is itself going to make you an, a, uh, a outcast of society, pardon me. Another way to read this though, is that Mirabelle is Cassandra. Yeah. I think that's a, a very potent reading. Yeah. She ends up getting a vision of the future. That is, she sees the cracks in the wall. Only she can see it. She warns everybody about it. Like Troy about to crumble and fall. Nobody believes her. So she goes deeper into the prophecy and can see a way to avert this disaster, which then directly causes the very thing she was trying to prevent, the collapse of the house and the absence of magic. Which winds up being extremely necessary for them to rebuild the foundation with something stronger and more sustainable that will allow for this healing. And what does the mythic fall of Troy lead to in a mythological sense? It leads to a Trojan named Aeneid to go on an adventure that takes him into the underworld, seeing things like Cerebus, and then founding a Trojan colony called Rome. Yep. And then Brutus of Troy heading up north and founding Britain. Uh, anyway, I think that's fantastic. And here I am, linking in Kanto to Rome, baby. Because that is the the magical gift that was bestowed upon you by this house. You have the magical gift of being able to link everything back to Rome. All roads do really lead there, don't they? Absolutely. If Mirabelle is Cassandra and the foundation cracks, it leads to the foundation of Rome. So bringing all of this together, I just want to talk a little bit about Mirabelle and her power or lack of power. Uh, just to kind of wrap things up here, Mirabelle, obviously the only one born into the family without a gift, and yet she has some extraordinary abilities that have come together through her experience of being the not special special. And I think part of what that is, is this 
mix that she is taking the good and the the strengths of the people around her and incorporating them into her personality, her identity. Like you just said, she had kind of a vision of the future. She was the only one to see the cracks. She also is a healer. She's interested in healing the the broken relationships in the family and also putting the casita back together. She is taking from all of the people around her and building a, a, a strength within herself that is, I think, more, more powerful than a lot of the people around her because she is the only one who can communicate with everyone. She is the only one who can communicate in such a specific way with the house. She's the only one who can finally get through to Abuela and allow her to tell her story in its entirety. She's the only one who can open up Isabella and Luisa. And all of that is a superpower. There are a lot of repetitions of the words, open your eyes, open my eyes, what do you see in the movie? And Mirabelle obviously wears glasses, which is a very awesome specific character trait you do not see often in Disney heroes. And she has this innate power of perception and being able to see the needs of the people, the community, herself, her home. And through that, she becomes the savior of it all. I love that. I'd say drop the mic, but they're on stands. They're on stands, baby. That's all I got. Yeah, I could probably talk for several more hours about Bruno, but yeah, this I could has talk, been a lot of fun. I, I have a whole segment I wanted to talk about initiations into adulthood, but we'll save that maybe for a Twitter thread. Yeah. Because we're out of time. The baby will wake up any second. Without further ado, until next time, be kind. <laughs>